Rescue has to work very hand in hand with medical. Any decision that we make to remove a victim could have an adverse effect on patient care. There has to be some type of medical control officer with us at all times. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again on another episode of Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service just like you from coast to coast. On this episode, we're going to take a look at a confined space rescue and dissect it. It happened in 2014 at a water treatment facility in New Jersey. An employee found that a man had climbed into a 20-inch diameter pipe. The pipe empties into a drainage basin at the facility, and that's where the man got in. He moved along the pipe until he found a vertical section with a 12-foot drop, and he fell in head first. Okay, that's the setup. Here to discuss the rescue is Lieutenant Mike Daly. He serves with the Monroe Township Fire District Number 3 in New Jersey, Mike was recently awarded the Master Fire Instructor Certification from the ISFSI. He developed a rescue training curriculum and serves on New Jersey Task Force 1. And Mike is a managing member of Fire Service Performance Concepts. Mike Daly, welcome to Code 3. Thanks, Scott. This guy was really stuck. He was in a totally inaccessible position, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He manipulated his way through two 90-degree bends in a pipe, brought himself to a 12-foot below-grade area uh, to the point where we had to remove the pipe section by section due to the weight. Once we were able to gain access, we were able to remove it. But this pipe location really gave us a hard time. One of the big issues was that it was at the end of a huge berm, which limited the amount of space that we had work around the pipe. So tool stabilization and operation with manpower was very difficult. Not to mention that the top of the berm wasn't level. It had a heck of a pitch for drainage. So being able to mount some type of rigid overhead anchor with any kind of stability was really difficult. We decided to go with an overhead anchor from an aerial device for our rigging. So we had some uh, real accessibility problems and due to the age of the pipe, it took a long time to get it apart. How much pain, if any, was this victim in during this operation? Well, the conditions at the day of the morning of the incident, it was early January. It was very cold. It was uh, cold, as you would figure, in the northeast. The sun was out, but he was also 12 feet below grade. It drops the temperature down, and he was laying in, in water and silt at the bottom of the pipe. So he was probably pretty cold. As being hypothermic, I don't know that he really had many injuries that we were able to assess from up at the top of the pipe. But once we were able to get in and package him out, he was uh, loaded right onto a gurney. We had a uh, trauma surgeon response from the local trauma center, and he was evaluated and flown to the local trauma center from there. 
Okay, so he's stuck about 12 feet below grade in a pretty darn narrow pipe. What was the initial plan to extricate him? The initial plan required us to disassemble the pipe. We were able to get a plot plan of how the pipes were run to see if there was a section that we could get for accessibility without having to disassemble much of the pipe. Problem with that was there were valves and control systems that were buried underground that we would not be able to manipulate past. That required us to go in the same way he went in. Now, having two 90-degree bends in the pipe, which really looked like a very large faucet coming out of the ground, one would not really be cohesive for our entrance to make an entry. Secondly, once our patient's packaged, we wouldn't have been able to manipulate him past the bends in the pipe to get him out. So once we saw that our best option was to disassemble the pipe, that's where we started our operation. With the pipes underground, did that mean you had to extricate the pipe itself to get to the victim? These pipes were in place for many, many years, and they took a lot of bolts that were roughed in place to be disassembled. Once all the bolts were taken off, these pipes were held together with kind of a compressive fitting, and over the years, that compressive fitting was almost cemented into place. We had to put relief cuts into the pipe at every joint so that we can relieve the pressure that was surrounding each section of pipe. Now to do that, we wound up starting off with some rotary saws. While we were cutting though, the gas engines powered these saws were starting to increase the level of carbon monoxide inside the space. So we had to switch out from the gas powered tools and use hydraulic and electric tools to finish the cutting. Along with that, since the patient was on the ground, we wanted to pump some warm air into him to help kind of keep him coherent. This became problematic because our warming unit runs on propane. The local warming unit that was brought that ran on propane started to increase the carbon monoxide level in the space as well. So we were lowering some blankets and towels once we can get access into the victim to help warm the victim up before we remove them. This was clearly a major operation. How long did it take from start to finish? The initial call came in at 7.35 a.m., and shortly after the initial department arrived, they requested uh, local and state technical rescue teams to respond, and by the 11.42, command was terminated. All of the rescue resources were cleared from the scene. So when all was said and done, what lessons were learned from this operation? Well, one of the things that we stressed as a lesson from this incident, considering the complexity and the dynamics of the incident, there was a lot of skill for the technical rescue responder to have to deal with just to gain accessibility to the patient. It's one thing to just buy a whole system, lower into a pipe, and pull a victim out. But this situation was a little different. We had to spend a lot of time just to be able to get access to the patient. So when we respond, just like any other rescue company, rescue is the science of alternative means. You have to find ways to deal with the problems that you are faced when you arrive. So the rescuers have to be very well versed in problem solving. It took most of the time that we had to remove the section of the pipe. The victim rescue removal was, was relatively quick in the broad picture. It only took us about 20 minutes to half an hour to remove the victim once we had accessibility. 
But being able to operate and determine accessibility requires being able to lift, to move, to pull, to push, to cut, and do all of this stuff safely and efficiently so that we can get to the victim. The other issue that we had is one of the things that we don't want to do when we get there is make things worse. So does it become more of a disassembly or a destruction operation to get access? We decided to disassemble versus destroy the pipe area so that due to the fact that the victim seemed to be alert and oriented, was not complaining of very much pain, we chose to disassemble and not cause more damage to the incident than we originally wrote, uh, that originally arose. That's a decision that has to be made based on each different incident. But the one thing we don't want to do is make things worse when we get there. I'll be back with more right after this. On any given day, you are tasked to be your best and power through the worst of times, all at a moment's notice. We know the sacrifices you make each and every day. Your success relies on superior equipment and the best training available. That's why Federal Resources is here to support you, the everyday hero. We are here so you can excel. Discover your success at federalresources.com. With the victim down there for hours, what level of danger was there to him? Well, there was some hazards that we had to mitigate as we operated. Uh, again, as we were cutting relief cuts into the pipes joints to relieve the pressure, we had a considerable increase in carbon monoxide. We didn't want the atmosphere where the victim was to change, so we had to find alternative means to get our jobs done, which meant we switched over to electric equipment and hydraulic equipment. Additionally, he was underground, laying in silt and water. We wanted to keep him warm. Um, patient care has to begin as soon as we can get somebody in to the zone. So the pipe being as limited as in size as it was, that means we were limited to the amount of rescuers and the size of the rescuers we can even get into the pipe. So any entrant that went in had to have some medical training to be able to package the victim as soon as possible and begin patient care even in the pipe or in the hot zone, if you will, so that we can provide the best care immediately once we get to the victim. Any removal on any rescue, and this is important to understand because a lot of people miss this point. Rescue has to work very hand-in-hand with medical. Any decision that we make to remove a victim could have an adverse effect on patient care. There has to be some type of medical control officer with us at all times who helps set the pace for the rescue. There have been times where things have gotten worse for the patient based on the best practices that the rescue teams have used. So we have noticed and we have changed our operation to include definitive medical care within the rescue team that's responding. That medical control officer, if you will, paces the rescue and tells us how quick or how slow or whatever pace we need to do to remove the victim. Now, that was the trauma surgeon you mentioned? Yes. We had them and a couple of paramedics on scene. And don't forget, our, our, our urban search and rescue team travels with doctors as well. So we're, we're very well staffed with that. We have some of the best doctors in the business with us. Um, any decision we make runs by them. 
Um, if, if, if meds and, and uh, other operations have to go in place from the medical standpoint before removal, then that takes priority. It's all about the best care we can give to the victim. So now this is interesting to me. Are you saying that your USAR guys always respond with um, a trauma surgeon or another physician? Yes, we have a medical component that's made up of some of the best doctors in the area. It's also made up with paramedics, EMTs, some of the best folks in the business that come with us. And they are trained just to our level as well, so they can enter anywhere we go. And they can do just about anything we can do as well. So we really, we train on a regular basis as well. This year, we, we did a two-day training evolution that focused on medical control during patient removal. So we spent the better part of 24 hours working side-by-side with doctors and removing simulated victims as they performed what they needed to do prior to the removal. So it's real, big, real key that the medical control has to be included in any decision that we made. I think a lot of agencies would simply have paramedics with a phone link to the hospital, but you're saying that your guys think it's important to have a physician on the scene with them at all times. For incidents that have this magnitude that we respond to, especially at the USAR level, without question. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how big a deal was this rescue in the big scheme of things for your guys? Well, this is probably on a scale of 1 to 10. I would put it about a 7 or an 8. There was a lot of issues getting to the patient. There was limited clearance and uh, space to work within to get the patient into a harness or package to to be removed. So there, I'd put this at about a 7 or an 8. All right. That's a great story and a great rescue. My daily thanks for being on Code 3 to tell it to us. I appreciate uh, taking your time out and talking to me. Thanks again. And there's more information on confined space rescues as well as fire service performance concepts on our website at code3podcast.com slash confined. Check it out. Here comes your trivia question. A hazard of this type of stream when it's used for interior firefighting is that it can actually push the fire with the massive amount of air it introduces. I'll have the answer. I'll have the answer right after this. Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan. And now you can tell the world you're a Code 3 fan in color. Check out the shirts. Here's the trivia answer. The fog stream, when used for interior firefighting, can actually push the fire or pull it with the massive amount of air that it moves. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I will be back here next time with more, and I hope you will be here too. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. 
Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.